0: Well, again, good morning. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, again, my name is Aaron Bierke. I'm one of the assistant pastors at Redeemer Presbyterian Church uh, East Side's campus. We meet at Hunter College on the Upper East Side there. And uh, my friendship with Mark goes back a long time, although I've not been here uh, for several years. The last time I was here um, was an international dinner night. And so I told Mark, I'm on a roll because last night was great. And so um, it's, it's always great to just uh, uh, get acquainted with, um, with the Grace Prez in different moments over the course of, the, of year, several years. So, uh, thank you for your hospitality. And Mark and Leslie are always so uh, gracious with their guests here. Um, today, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 10. So, I'll read that for us now. <clears throat> Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. At the end of your life, don't you want to say, I was such a great coward. I was filled with envy and greed, and I made countless mistakes in my anger because I lacked lacked self-control. Isn't that what you want to say? Isn't that what we all want to say? Of course not. That is not what anybody wants to say. Uh, we want to say the exact opposite thing. That my life was filled with wisdom and courage and generosity and self-control. But you know, the, the first kind of life, the life that's filled with envy and greed, that kind of life happens all the time. But it's that second kind of life, uh, a life filled with wisdom and courage, that life only happens sometimes sometimes. Andy Crouch puts it this way, he says, How do we then become the kind of people who have wisdom and courage? The only way to do it is with other people. We need people who know us and the complexities and difficulties of our lives really well, so well that we can't hide the complexity and difficulty from them. If you don't have people in your life who know you and love you in that radical way, it is very, very unlikely you will develop either wisdom or courage. You may become smart, and you might even become successful, but it is very unlikely you will have a deep enough understanding of yourself and your complex calling to actually become either wise or courageous. We just are too good at deceiving ourselves, and we think too highly of ourselves. The people who know us best see the truth about who we are even as they also see more clearly who we could become. Do you have someone like that in your life? Someone who loves you so much that they will walk with you until you become a person defined by wisdom and courage. Someone who's in your corner, fighting for you, and is even willing to have difficult conversations and awkward moments because they care about you that much. That's a great question, but let me flip that question on us. It's the more important question for today. Are you a person with such character that you can walk next to someone to the point that that person becomes one defined by wisdom and courage? Are you that kind of person? The Bible puts it this way. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And that's what it is to love well. It's to be that kind of friend that is willing to walk next to someone until they are defined by wisdom and courage. But see, it's a lot more nuanced than just simply a kiss or a wound. It's all about motivation. It's why we wound. It's why we kiss. And so what is it to be the kind of person who loves someone so well that they know when love needs to take on the form of a wound and when deceit takes on the form of a kiss? And if you are that kind of a person, you can actually be, you can actually have the kind of character that walks next to someone until they transform into this passage that we just read. This passage shows us how we can become a person of such character that we can love someone really well by first giving us a framework of love. And then secondly, it shows us uh, an example of life through that framework. And then lastly, this passage tells us why a life of love is satisfying on the level of identity. So we have a framework, we're given an example of a loving life, and then we're told why it's so satisfying on an identity level. So first, a framework to love well. Now let me start by looking at this text with a summary thought. Because when you, when you read it, you'll notice that it starts with the word therefore. So it's right in the middle of a thought thought. And the text itself is a little scattered. You could kind of have eight mini-sermons here, which we're not going to do. Um, But it could be a great uh, sermon series. But so it's a little scattered. It's right in the middle of a thought from the Apostle Paul, who is the author of Ephesians. So let me just start with a summary thought. Verse 32, commentators agree, uh, the first part is essentially the crux of the entire passage. Verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. We'll stop right there. That is essentially the crux of this entire passage. In that kindness is the purest form of the imitation of God. Kindness is is the purest form of the imitation of the God of the Bible. And when you hear, be kind, though that's not very helpful. and And kind, even today, kind of has this weak meaning. Oh, Be kind. Um, But what is it to be kind? Uh, Is it to be helpful? Is it to be polite? And and when should a person be helpful and polite? But in giving us this list of virtues, of do's and don'ts, the author gives us a framework. And see, um, lists of virtues and vices uh, in the Greco-Roman world were common. Um, Every teacher essentially put out his list and says, you should live like this, forsake these things and, and do this. But what's different from the Apostle Paul here is that his list isn't motivated by willpower. All the other lists of virtues and vices during that time were were, uh, trying to to leverage one's self-control, one's willpower. But this list is actually a reflection of the character of God. And that's what makes a difference. The Apostle Paul is using... Uh, God's character as the framework to live a life of love, to be kind. And what I mean by that is um, the the Christian theology says that uh, there's one God in three persons. That's the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what Paul has done in this passage is he links a particular character or trait to each person in the Trinity, gives us three different categories And together forms a framework of kindness, forms a framework of what it is to love well. And so what I want to do is briefly go through that framework to help make this passage a little smoother for us to understand, and then we'll wrestle with some thoughts about what it is to actually live out this framework. Uh, So let's walk through um, the three categories that we see of the Trinity here. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let's start with the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, we read, the author says, do not... Grieve the Holy Spirit. And another way that it could be translated is do not sadden the Spirit. And what we see in this passage right away, verse 30, is that the God of the Bible is a personal God. That he's not some impersonal force in the universe who doesn't care about you or your life, but rather the exact opposite is the case. That he takes personal interest in you. He wants to have a relationship with you. As we sang, he's more than just a savior, he's also a friend. And so he desires that relationship with you. And underneath this verse um, is the Old Testament passage in Isaiah chapter 63. And in that passage, what we learn is that God's spirit is particularly sensitive to anything that would hurt the people in his temple. Again, this idea of, 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 of sensitivity, saddening, grieving. Now, Christian theology in Ephesians 2 says that because of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, there is no more need for a physical temple. There's no more brick and mortar spot or location in the world that we must worship at. But instead, because of Jesus, the church is the body of Christ. That is the temple, and that is where the Spirit, God's Spirit, dwells. So when we put all this together, what we see is that God's Spirit is particularly sensitive to anything that would hurt his church. But we can also broaden it because God has placed his image in each person, that he is also sensitive to anything that would harm his creation and to harm uh, people in general. And so what we see with this first category, with the Holy Spirit, is a sensitivity, that when we experience uh, a form of sensitivity from God, we're experiencing an aspect of his kindness. So that's the first category in this framework. Uh, Secondly, let's consider God the Father. Uh, In uh, verses 32 and chapter 5, verse 1, we read about the forgiveness of God. And we see God the Father and forgiveness being connected all the time in the New Testament. For example, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, uh, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. And so time and again, God the Father and forgiveness are linked together. And therefore, when we experience the forgiveness of God, we experience an aspect of his kindness. So when you experience a sensitivity from God via the Holy Spirit, that's an aspect of his kindness. When we experience God's forgiveness from the Father, we experience an aspect of his kindness. But then lastly, uh, the category of Jesus. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 2, we read, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this is referring to the cross of Jesus, who died a death that we should have died, even though he lived a life that we should have lived. In other words, he put the needs of others before his own need. And so the picture that comes from Jesus in in this verse, chapter 5, verse 2, is a life of selflessness a life of putting the needs of others before one's self, And therefore, when we experience uh, the selflessness of God, when we experience the the work of Jesus on the cross, we experience an aspect of God's kindness. So putting all this together, we had the categories of uh, the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit, sensitive to anything that would harm uh, the church and harm humanity in general. Uh, We had the forgiveness of the Father, And we have the self-sacrifice, the selflessness of Jesus, the Son. And that creates a framework of kindness or a love that reflects God's character. And here's where this is helpful. Uh, Again, if you just hear be kind or love one another, it's it's just ambiguous. What does that mean? Well, this this gives us a framework now. So for example, using these three categories, you might say that you forgive people really well and that you seek forgiveness when you're wrong. And you might say that you put the needs of others before yourself. But if you are insensitive to the needs of those around you, it's hard to say that you're a kind person. It's hard to say that you're loving as well as you could. Or let's say uh, you are really good at putting the needs of others before yourself. And you're really sensitive to the needs of those around you, the people's feelings and how they're doing. But if you are great at holding grudges, and if you never seek out forgiveness when you're wrong, it's hard to say that you're a kind person. It's hard to say that you do a good job at loving well. Or we could put it one more way. Let's say that you are sensitive to those around you. Let's say that you uh, do a great job at forgiveness and asking for forgiveness, but if you're constantly living for your needs and ignoring the needs of those around you, you're, you're really selfish, uh, it's hard to say that you're a kind person. It's hard to say that you're loving as well as you could be. See how that works? So you, kinda, you need all three categories at play in your life to reflect in a full, full version of the character and kindness of God. And the minute you're lacking either sensitivity or forgiveness or the selflessness that we see in Jesus' life, uh, it gives you just a clue, it gives you an idea um, that you're not living a life that ultimately reflects the character of God. So that that framework that Paul, the author, is giving us uh, is an exhortation through the character of God, through this Trinity God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And when we start to live along those lines, our lives will begin to reflect his character, and that brings us to our second point. So, a life that is presented through this character. Uh, let me start with this thought. Part of the, um, the pursuits uh, of, of life for all of us is the pursuit for love and to experience love, to love others well and to experience love. Uh, the podcast Heavyweight, which has become a kind of a very popular podcast over the last year, um, is all about uh, delving into rocky and thorny relationships and it attempts to go back to the moment in all these relationships where everything starts to fall apart. And the creator of the podcast, Jonathan Goldstein, as he's reflecting on a failed relationship in his own life, uh, really sums up this human journey well when he says, we build up walls and then spend the rest of our life trying to tear them down. We build up walls, and then we spend the rest of our life trying to tear them down. And the Bible agrees. Uh, just just a brief look at our text shows us all the ways that we build up walls. Verse 25, lying to one another. Verse 26, essentially holding grudges. Uh, verse 28, stealing. Uh, chapter 5, verse 3, using our, our sexuality uh, for our own advantages and needs rather than to advantage others, our, our spouse. And what we see underneath all of this is this uh, practice of Accountability. Accountability is essentially growing in friendship to the point where we sense a responsibility for one another and desire to live for that person. That is essentially the practice that Paul is exhorting everybody to in this passage. So, what is it to use our efforts to build up people rather than walls? To use the words of Jonathan Goldstein. Well, let's, let's dive into it. Again, I want to use the three categories of the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of God the Father, and the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But let's work backwards and start with the self-sacrifice of Jesus. So again, in chapter 5, verse 2, is where we get this first category of selflessness. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I want you to notice notice the holistic nature that this first category is. Uh, That verse starts with the word walk, and that refers to this Jewish idea uh, in which there's a holistic posture that shapes a person's life. Um, And this this posture shaping actually fits the imagery of sacrifice that we see at the end of that verse. Because think about what it is to sacrifice something. If you offer something up for sacrifice, uh, you don't just offer up a portion of it, you offer up the whole thing. And therefore, to live a life for the needs of others rather than for yourself, that we see in this first category with Jesus, um, requires one's whole life. In other words, to live uh, sacrificially is binary. It's either happening or it's not. Uh, there, there's, no, there's no middle ground. Uh, we get an example of this in, in verse 28. Uh, where Paul is speaking to the thief, and he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so Paul is saying to the thief, well, it's not good that you're stealing, so maybe, maybe do a noble job for most of your life and just steal on the side. Paul is saying to the thief, no, no, your whole life needs to change. Stop stealing altogether. Do a noble work. Do a noble job and use what you get from that job to share with those in need. So it's a, it's a radical transformation of, of one's life. And therefore, to, to live uh, in this category that we see reflected in Jesus, this category of selflessness, is a radical change in one's life. Um, it means that there's, there's no such thing as reflecting the kindness of God if you are kind at home, but then you're a jerk at work. Um, or if you're generous to those who are generous to you, but you, are, you don't care at all to those who don't care about you at all. Uh, there's no such thing as dividing your life up. It's either, it's either you are living a life that considers the needs of others, or you're not. It's one or the other. It's binary. And that's a radical challenge that we see in the life of Jesus here. And so, as we think about this, this framework of, of loving well, or this framework of uh, kindness that reflects God's character we're first challenged with this idea of living a life for the needs of others, and that it's a whole transformation of your life. But now secondly, let's consider the forgiveness of the Father. Now passages like this in the New Testament really point to the crux of the Christian idea of forgiveness, and that Christians don't forgive uh, because it's a good idea or it's strategic in your social relationships. Um, or that over time it'll it'll help your character grow. Even though all those things might in moments be true, but what we see in this passage is that Christians forgive because God has first forgiven them. Uh, Christians forgive because it's a response out of God's forgiveness. Uh, there was an article in the New Yorker that looked at Rod Dreher. Some of you might know him. He's the Amer- he's the editor of the American Conservative. And uh, he shares about a, a rift that existed in his relationship with his father. And that rift started, started when he was a, a young teenager. And it grew and grew and grew over time. And as he became a, an adult, many decades later, he was reflecting on the fact that he felt justified holding this grudge for decades because his, his father was mean to him. His father hurt him. His father was disrespectful to him. Uh, and so he thought, you know, as a kid, I need my dad to be a dad. Uh, and so I have every right to hold this grudge uh, and to, to live this way towards him. But he was challenged with a thought, and I think this, this thought really helps frame uh, practically for us what it is to live out the second category of kindness, which is this kindness of forgiveness reflected by uh, God the Father. And so Rod Drure, this article says, Rod is confronted by his priest, his orthodox priest, And uh, the article says, his priest was the one who laid down the law. He said to Rod, you have no choice as a Christian. You've got to love your dad, even if he doesn't love you back in the way that you want him to. You cannot stand on justice. In other words, I feel right to be angry towards my father. That is, I have every right to, because he's been so mean to me. His orthodox priest is saying, no, no, you can't stand on that justice. Justice. He says, love matters more than justice because the higher justice is love itself. The higher justice is love. In other words, what he means by that is when we're wronged, when we, when we don't want to live a life of forgiveness, uh, we are very right in sitting in our unforgiveness towards someone because they hurt us. So we have every right to be mad at them. We have every right to hold a grudge uh, against them. We have every right to be bitter toward them because they hurt us. That's just. But the bible shows us through the forgiveness of god that there's actually a higher justice than just being right in your bitterness and that the higher justice is god's love god is love and his love is embodied in forgiveness and so if we're going to play the game of justice well i i deserve to be right that's that's what's i I deserve to be angry i deserve to be bitter because he or she hurt me If we're going to play the game of justice as Christians, we' reminded that actually the higher justice is a life of forgiveness. Uh, Miroslav Volf, uh, a theologian, shows us, or explains to us, why the higher justice is forgiveness. He says that when you fail to give forgiveness to those who've hurt you, you're doing two things in that exact moment. Uh, the first thing is that you're removing yourself from the community of sinners, and secondly, you're removing your enemy from the community of humans. When, when you refuse to forgive somebody because they've wronged you, you're doing two things. You are removing yourself from the community of sinners, and you're at the same time removing your enemy from the community of humans. In other words, in your unforgiveness, you're essentially saying, well, I'm, I, I'm intrinsically a better kind of person. I'm, I'm made of better material. I would never do that. Of course, the Bible, if you're a Christian, doesn't allow you to sit there, because that's not true. And when you remove uh, your your enemy from the community of humans, you're striking at his or her uh, humanity itself. So e- so even though he or she maybe hurt you, you're, you're trying to actually take a piece of humanity from them when you refuse to forgive. Uh, the image of God that's been placed in everybody, you're essentially saying, I refuse to acknowledge that. And that's why unforgiveness um, is not the higher justice, even if you've been wrong, the higher justice is the love of god which is embodied in forgiveness so the second category the forgiveness of god challenges us to consider what is it to really live a life of love it's to live a life of forgiveness even when it's difficult because that's actually the the most just life that a person could live so we have the self-sacrifice of jesus a holistic posture is required if we're going to live a life for the needs of others rather than for our own needs Secondly, we have the forgiveness of the Father. That is the higher form of justice. It's the higher form of love because it's embodied with forgiveness. But lastly, we have this third category, the Holy Spirit. And again, in verse 30, we read about grieving or, or as I said before, saddening the Spirit. And when you think about the quality or the nature of, of the Spirit and it, His sensitivity, um, a few thoughts can come to mind. Think of one, a person who is quick to detect. Think of a person who Um, has great awareness or one who is highly responsive to those around them. And essentially what we see in verse 30 is um, a God with high emotional intelligence. That's essentially what verse 30 is about. And we see that that is the case throughout the New Testament because uh, it is God through the Holy Spirit who searches us, who knows us, who teaches us, who Dwells with us, who groans for us, who cries out, who intercedes for us, who helps us, and even grieves when we get hurt. And that sounds like a, a high emotional intelligence, somebody who is really aware of the people around them. And the picture that we get with the Spirit's sensitivity is really, you might say, a good counselor. And, I mean, think about a counselor. A really good counselor needs to be aware and respond to the needs of the client. And a really good counselor will use his or her sensitivity to push into the life of the client to help him or her experience healing. And through that sensitivity of the counselor, the client can actually learn to push into his or her own heart to the point of healing. And so what we see with the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit is that sensitivity... Leads to healing, sensitivity leads to access. That when we're aware of the needs around us and the person in front of us, uh, if we're given permission to go into their emotional and spiritual space and uh, they can experience kindness, uh, that is a great way for that person uh, to heal. Now, commentators agree that the verse that essentially is linked to this sensitivity or grieving of the Holy Spirit is verse 29. And uh, verse twenty-nine says, "Let no uh, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." Uh, And so, in other words, it's from our tongues, it's from our mouths, that our sensitivity is displayed and experienced. And so, if you want to know, am I doing a great job at at um, at displaying the sensitivity that I've experienced from God, this God who knows me, who searches? Uh, my heart who groans with me, who cries out for me, who intercedes for me? How am I doing with with this kind of sensitivity for others that I've experienced from God? You just have to answer the question, uh, what do my words create? Do my words create division, hostility, anger from others? Or do my words create peacemaking and generosity and teamwork and hope and courage and however you answer that question, that will give you an idea with how you're doing regarding displaying a sensitivity that you've experienced by God through his spirit. Um, uh, last month, as, as many of us know, uh, Billy Graham passed away. And uh, that week of his, of his death and his funeral, I, I just spent a lot of time reading different reflections and different experiences of people that, that people had uh, interacting with him. And one thing that was really consistent throughout all the different memories that people shared or that I read was just their experience that they had or that they walked away with having interacted with him, uh, that they left more hopeful, uh, more courageous. And Billy Graham himself said that he wasn't a great preacher. It wasn't the words that he said uh, behind the pulpit or at the crusades uh, that that, that counted or mattered, but it was really the, the words that he had uh, that he would give people in really personal moments uh, when, when nobody was looking. And it seemed like it didn't matter what side of the aisle you were politically or even what religious beliefs or con- or um, convictions you had. Um, you, always, you always experienced kindness uh, when you were with him. Uh, so for example, President Bill Clinton spoke of Billy Graham as a counselor for him in a time of need. And President George W. Bush credited uh, Billy Graham for, ha- for having helped him Turn from his drinking. Uh, Both uh, talked about just the the hope and courage that they got after interacting with him. Now, Billy Graham himself wouldn't say, well, what they experienced was some Billy Graham kindness. Uh, Instead, Billy Graham would say, no, I I experienced kindness from God. I experienced love from God. And as a Christian, uh, my calling is to give that same kindness, that same kind of love to those around me. And so when we look at something like that, we start to see this clear picture of a life of kindness, that the goal of kindness isn't to, to, to uh, ultimately be sensitive to the needs of others, or to forgive, um, or to live for the needs of others before yourself, although all those are completely important and necessary to live out the Christian faith, but when, they're, when they all come together, what we actually see is that a, love, a life of kindness um, is... To make God known to those around us. Romans 2 says that it is the experience of the kindness and love of God that draw people to Jesus. And so the goal of a life, of a, of a loving life, essentially is, is missional. You might even say evangelistic, because it's the experience of the kindness of God, that same kindness then that we're called to give to others, will, God will use that to draw people to himself. And as a pastor, I, I, I um, get the privilege of seeing this happen from time to time. Actually, a lot of times. Um, over, the, over the past handful of years, I've had the, uh, the opportunity and privilege to lead uh, what we call a seeker group. Um, seeker groups are for people wrestling with the Christian faith. Uh, sometimes they are actually searching for God. Other times they just want to have uh, some real conversations that maybe they can't have at work or with their roommate. And so there are groups really designed for people who, aren't, who are non-religious friends or neighbors uh, to wrestle with real questions. And I remember one, uh, one of the groups, maybe the second or third week, um, uh, one of the members pulled me aside, and, uh, and she was just commenting on the group uh, itself and the experience. Um, and, and part of what makes these groups different than maybe a Bible study is that we, we don't look at the Bible, but we try to wrestle with different, um, uh, different thoughts that ref- that um, are rooted in the Bible, but we want to help people see first that uh, that the wisdom of God is 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 found in a lot of places, um, and to help them consider, oh, may- maybe God has His fingerprint in other spots that we didn't really necessarily see before. And so it's kind of a dinner party. There there's desserts and drinks and food given, and then a discussion happens. And so this 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 member pulled me aside, and she said. Uh, you know, Erin, this is interesting because uh, she was uh, born in, in China, came over when she was six years old, and she said, uh, you know, this is an interesting experience I've had. I've only been to church once in my life, and it was just a couple of weeks ago. And my only other interaction with Christians before then was this family uh, in Indiana, uh, this classmate, uh, like, I think maybe first or second grade, invited her over and for play, their playing and stuff like that, and then that, that friend's mom learned uh, that uh, she wasn't a Christian and so uh, the, the mom said that she wasn't welcome back in their house because she wasn't a Christian. And so she thought, well, if Christians aren't going to have anything to do with me, I, I don't want anything to do with, with these Christians. So that set up several decades of, you can imagine, some hostility towards Christians. So then as she kind of finds her way into this discussion group, uh, over, the, over the few weeks of just kind of being loved on and cared for, uh, an epiphany happened. And she said, you know, Aaron, I've been a part of groups my entire life. Groups at work, groups outside of work, uh, groups of friends. Uh, and essentially, they've, all, they've always only taken from me. But this is the first group that's only ever given to me. And you've never asked for anything in, re- in return. That's kind of weird. I thought, oh, I, I never really thought about it. I, I suppose it is kind of odd. And then several months later, she becomes a Christian. And it's not because of any strong argument that she heard in the group. She credit it to just experiencing kindness, experiencing space to think about her life and to ask questions about the doubts she's having while at the same time being fed and being cared for. Um, and it was a, it's a great picture of what does a life of kindness lead to? And it, and it leads uh, people to draw closer to God. Now, how can we live out this kind of life because if I stop the sermon here, I'm essentially telling you, well, try harder. And that's not what I want you to take away from the sermon. Although, of course, God is, if you're a Christian, God is calling you to use your efforts to build up people. Use your efforts to live for the needs of those around you rather than yourself. Use your effort to forgive those who uh, don't deserve your forgiveness. Uh, use your efforts to be sensitive to those around you. Absolutely, that's part of it. But where do we get the power for that? How can we live a life like that? One theologian wraps up this passage by saying Christianity is to have one's body shaped and one's habits determined in such a way that the worship of God is unavoidable. Living in such a way that the worship of God as a Christian is unavoidable. And a life of love Again, kindness is the purest form of the imitation of the God of the Bible. A life of love leads to unavoidable worship because it is at that moment that you have aligned your whole self to the character of God. The Spirit, the Father, the Son, you've aligned your whole self to who God is. So, of course, worship can't help but just start to be part of your life. Verse 8 says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are lights in the Lord walk as children of light. That's the answer. What do I mean? Well, notice that it doesn't say uh, you were once in darkness and now you are in the light. No, it says you are now light in the Lord. You are now light in the Lord. In other words, there is something transforming when you follow Jesus by faith. That a person is not simply living in the light of God, that they, but that they, they become light in the Lord. They become light in the Lord. That first scripture passage that we read in John chapter 1, the life of Jesus is a light to all mankind, and when you follow Jesus by faith, you become light in him. His light penetrates you such that you become light itself. Being united to him by faith is like being uh, a piece of carbon that's glowing because you're connected to an electric force. When you follow Jesus because of the cross, because of the resurrection, you glow, you radiate with his light, and you are called to then share that light with others. And that's how you can live this this life in Ephesians 4. None of us will live this life if we just try harder. It is when our efforts... Are, are undergirded with the very light of God, that we become light itself in the Lord, that we will then live like this. And as I said earlier at the, at the beginning of this sermon, what is it to be kind of person that has such character that you can actually walk next to someone to the point that they become a person defined by wisdom and courage? I wonder if, if, you, if, if most, if not all of us, thought, oh gosh, that's, that's not me. I can barely take care of my own spiritual walk. How in the world am I supposed to be a kind of person that can walk with someone until they become a person defined by wisdom and character? And so you you felt weak, as I did as well. Uh, But I want to let you know that you're then in the best position to be used by God. Because the Bible tells us that God doesn't use the strong, He uses the weak. And He doesn't use the proud, He uses the humble. And when you follow Jesus by faith, then you, you'll realize just how weak you are. And it is then that you are in a great spot to be used by him. It is only then that you have a shot to even live a life that reflects Ephesians 4 and 5. Do you have enough humility to, to try and live like this? Do you have enough weakness to have the courage to align your life to God through faith to live like this? It's, it's, it's not just for your own edification, although it's, a, although it's great to live like this, but it is because God is calling his church to live like this so that those around them might, be, might see God's kindness, experience that kindness, and ultimately be drawn to him. Let me encourage you as a, as, a, as a community of faith out here in eastern Long Island to continue to live a life that reflects the character of God And in doing so, people will experience God's love and they might not even know it. And they might say things like, you know, you're a little weird, you're a Christian, I don't understand that, but I'm really glad you're here. And and I'm sad to hear when you have to move because our community is losing great people. I know we're already like that. The great stories I hear from Mark, let me encourage you to continue living like that, not on your own efforts alone, but because you've been united to Jesus by faith and you're glowing with his light. And you are light in the Lord, so live as children of light. We're about to go to the table. Let's let that thought lead us there. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for just this, um, this challenging reminder of what it is to love well. And that to love well is, uh, is to live a life of kindness. And kindness ultimately reflects who you are. It reflects the way we experience you with uh, your sensitivity through your spirit, uh, your forgiveness, and the, 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 the sacrificial nature that was the cross and the resurrection in Jesus. Uh, give us strength to do that. It is overwhelming to think about all the ways that we um, fail to love people well. Help us not get overwhelmed by our selfishness or our sin, although we might take it to you, but instead, uh, help us rest in your grace and your mercy that we might uh, get over ourselves and our failures because you've, you've forgiven us, and instead that we might walk a life that reflects your character for others. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.